Welcome to Common Ground, a higher education podcast that brings leaders from across Pennsylvania together to engage in meaningful conversation. I am Dr. Bashar Hanna, President of Commonwealth University with locations in Bloomsburg, Lock Haven, Mansfield, and Clearfield. Together, we're exploring the issues our institutions, our communities, our students and their families are facing on the path to earning a college degree. From institutional transformation to workforce development, college affordability, and career trends. I hope you'll take time to join me to learn more about the future of higher education and hear compelling stories from some of our Commonwealth's most transformational leaders. I'm honored to be joined today by Chad Lassiter, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission. Executive Director Rassiter is at the forefront of social work, social justice, and race relations in our Commonwealth. He has been recognized by the Philadelphia Tribune as the most influential African-American leader from 2010 to 2020. In 2019, he was inducted into the University of Pennsylvania's School of Social Policy and Practice Alumni Hall of Fame. In 2021, he was named Social Worker of the Year by the PA Chapter of the National Association of Social Workers. In 2022, he was named to the City and States the Power of Diversity Black 100 list. These are on top of many other accolades that are too numerous to list. We are honored and thrilled to have Chad here with us today to talk about his work with the Human Relations Commission, his educational journey, and how he hopes to continue to impact and empower the people of Pennsylvania. Thanks for having me. Chad, uh, your journey is incredible. We've known each other for many, many years, and I want to I wanna start there. Uh, you're on the forefront of changing people's lives throughout our entire state. But the passion didn't start yesterday or last year. Uh, it started early. Uh, it burns inside of you, and we've known each other for many years. Share with us two things, if you don't mind. Your personal journey, and also individuals who saw something in young Chad Lasseter that Chad Lasseter didn't see in himself. Wow, wow. Well, first and foremost, I'm just humbled and honored to be here with you. Um, Doc, and just it's it's honor to to be here once again. Um, For me, the way you framed it is absolutely right. Um, It started in the home. It started in growing up in North Philadelphia uh, with my mom, Marilyn Adele Lassiter, uh, my father, Sergeant Leslie Lassiter III, uh, two parents who instilled in me uh, a moral compass, a moral imperative. Uh, Growing up in North Philadelphia, we grew up in a community where you did for Uh, the older individuals in your community. And what I meant by that is if you cut their grass, if you cut their hedges, if you went to the store for them, uh, if they paid you, you better not come home with the money um, because you were supposed to do it as a sense of service. So it started in the home with my mom, my dad, uh, my two beloved grandmothers. Uh, My mom's mother was Thelma Patterson, and she actually was a domestic worker who cleaned for Sadie T. Alexander, uh, the first African-American to get a Ph.D., Uh, and economics, uh, and also the first African-American to get a law degree from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. And so my grandmother, Thelma Patterson, taught me work ethic. Uh, Even to this day, there's something about me wanting to mop uh, floors like she mopped on my own. 
And then for me, though, I love my mother. I love my my wife. Uh, the greatest woman I've ever known was my other grandmother, uh, Charlotte Frances Lassiter. Uh, and the thing that resonates with me about her is that she was just the type of individual that uh, she didn't allow you to make excuses whatsoever. Um, she taught me, you know, uh, how to say yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Uh, and she put books in my hand at a young age. And so coming in a, uh, from a family and a tradition that was really rooted in the black church tradition, it was my grandma Francis that allowed me the opportunity to listen to a Richard Pryor, to listen to a Red Fox. That's where I get my sense of humor from. Uh, she would be in church and she would be cutting up just like I would be cutting up in church. <laughs> and so um, it was a community that was loving, a community that was nurturing a community that poured into me. I also be remiss if I didn't mention Trying Baptist Church. My pastor, Reverend James S. Hall Jr., uh, at one particular point in time, he served as the mentor of uh, a young Reverend Jesse Jackson. My pastor comes out of Marion, South Carolina. Uh, my pastor, along with uh, Jackie Robinson, integrated the airports in Greenville, South Carolina. So my pastor comes out of that tradition. So it's my pastor, it's my family, uh, and it's the black church. It's those Sunday school teachers um, that dealt with me growing up as a young kid in North Philadelphia with uh, low self-esteem, uh, growing up in North Philadelphia, um, you know, at a time where young people made fun of you just like they do now. But during that time, we didn't look at it necessarily from a perspective of intimidation and bullying. Uh, so I was very thin uh, when I was growing up. And so if you remember that era of the late 70s, early 80s, you had good times uh, and the character J.J., J.J. Mm -hmm. Walker, yes. you know, uh, Kid Dynamite. So I was growing up and everybody thought I was J.J. So I got picked on. I got teased. I, I would imagine now that we're in the moment, I, I got bullied. Uh, but it was that kind of like upbringing where it was a lot of protective factors in my community. And then when you think about people who poured themselves into me, I also spent some time in Los Angeles um, because my mom was working on a second degree at the University of Southern California. And it was a deacon by the name of Deacon Bonner um, who introduced me to then mayor Tom Bradley. So I was in L.A. primarily from 1977 to 1985. And I met Tom Bradley uh, and Tom Bradley. He also poured into me about service. I ended up becoming a Boy Scout. So can you imagine growing up in South Central at that time where you had the Bloods, the Crips, you had Mexicans because in you know the East Coast, they're called Puerto Ricans. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the Mexicans were part of a gang called Piru of the Heart. And here, my brother and I, we're in the Boy Scouts. Wow. So that's a different kind of uniform. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> but it was, you know, those experiences of seeing suffering um, in Los Angeles, uh, seeing individuals who, for whatever reason, were socialized into the gangs. And I had to negotiate and navigate my way in and out of the community. So one of the ways I was able to do that when I went to uh, Sixth Avenue uh, Elementary was to do their homework mm -hmm. so that I didn't get beat up. We then moved back to Philadelphia uh, and I did my middle school at a place called Henry H. Houston. I did my eighth grade there and uh, that was pretty good, um, you know, good experience there. And then I go off to Onley High School. So from 1986 to 1990, I'm at Onley High and I'm meeting teachers like Richard Smith. Um, at that time, the library was essential for us, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and Richard Smith always told us, hey, make sure that you go to the library once a week, explore books. And two books that he put in my hand, one was Cry the Beloved Country. Mm. Uh, and the second book that Richard Smith, a white English teacher, put in my hand 
was The Souls of Black Folk. Wow. Um, I didn't understand it in 1986, but I read The Souls of Black Folk. And I was like, wow, W.E.B. Du Bois. So I started doing research. And you didn't have the World Wide Web at that time. So you really had to do your research. Uh, and I ended up taking books out on W.E.B. Du Bois. And that's where my intellectual fascination for Du Bois came at, came from. What a fascinating journey. Fast forward. You said something. Low self-esteem. Uh, bullied. Uh, two things that today's teenagers, uh, today's young people, um, are those feelings are not uncommon. Those experiences are not uncommon to them. Um, I'm going to go off script because this is a conversation between two colleagues who are old friends. What would you say to those students who are being bullied? And more importantly, I think, what would you say to those who are bullying? To the students that are being bullied um, in a very organic and fluid manner, because as you said, you and I, we're in the beloved community, we're in this space, we have a, a mutual admiration for one another. I would say in this era, uh, break through the silence, uh, try to uh, talk to a trusted adult, whatever that looks like. For me, I didn't talk to my mom or my dad about it because my dad suffered from PTSD mm -hmm. uh, because of two tours in Vietnam. And so Sergeant Leslie Lassiter, the third, um, metaphorically speaking, he would have found an uh, army tank. He wasn't going to let anybody bother his boobop because that was my name growing up. My brother was Big Jake. I was boobop. Uh, I wasn't going to tell my cousins in and around North Philadelphia, around Hunting Park and Ethan Butler, uh, because that side of the family, they were drug dealers. So you did not want them to know that their little cousin, Chad, was being bullied, was being intimidated, was being beat up on or things of that nature. So in this era, I would tell young people, you know, break through the silence. Find a trusted adult to talk to if you're being bullied and intimidated because you're LGBTQ+, uh, because you're uh, Jewish, because you're Asian American, Pacific Islander, because you're African American, or because you're uh, you know, in an interracial relationship, um, or because you come from a particular you know, class status. The uh, city of Philadelphia, as we know, is a city of neighborhoods. Uh, more often than not, if you're from South Philadelphia... You go to school in South Philadelphia. You know, we can we know if you're not from North Philadelphia, you know, on either side of the color line, South Philadelphia, there are certain privileges. You can park in the middle of the street and South Philadelphia. They, they believe that Rocky was a heavyweight champion. You know, uh, they're so he wasn't. You know, no, well, you know, he, was, he was a fictional character, you know, but but I would say that for them, uh, this era for young people um, to, to talk about it, uh, to seek therapy, uh, to kind of find a community where they can really galvanize around those who are bullying for the individuals that are bullying. I, I would have a frank conversation with them. I would simply say uh, that your bullying more often than not is rooted in a form of insecurity, a form of trying to other, uh, you know, individuals. And I would also say that the individuals who are doing the bullying need to recognize that, you know, there's diversity in getting to know someone. Um, but that's me in this place now, right? Yeah. That's me after being a social worker, right. being a sociologist. Right. I think that the bullies um, oftentimes have been bullied themselves. And so hurt people, hurt others. Um, there's a level of trauma that uh, the individuals who are engaged in bullying do. But I would also say that for the bullies, they need to be very mindful um, that this is a different generation of young people who will not just accept uh, certain behaviors. And I'm not saying that individuals will break from like a nonviolent mantra, uh, but individuals will go home and tell an older, you know, sibling will tell a, a family member that they're being bullied. Um, and so the message would also be, let's try to find, you know, harmony uh, and appreciation for one another, not tolerance, 
right? I don't like the word tolerance. I like appreciation. I appreciate you, though you may be, you know, LGBTQ plus. I appreciate you, though your last name may be Kaplan Stein or Berkowitz. I appreciate you, your Asian American Pacific Islander. I appreciate you, even though English may be your second language. Um, and so that would be my, my message. Thank you for that. The work you do across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania um, is um, heart and head changing. Uh, it's hard work because our state is filled with all of those populations of individuals and communities that you mentioned throughout your earlier comments. Share with us a little bit of what does a day in Chad Lassiter's life look like in the role that you are fulfilling as executive director. Uh, profound question. Um, it first starts with getting up at four o'clock in the morning. Um, I live. So in, you haven't changed that habit. Yeah, yeah I haven't. <laughs> yeah. So I'm in East Oak Lane. Um, I get up at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, I'm a man of faith. I respect people who may not share my faith or a faith, uh, believe, believe in something bigger than themselves. Uh, so I get up at four in the morning and literally, you know, uh, if I cry with this question, it's OK. Um, but I look in, you know, to the left. And I look in a, a bed uh, where I'm leaving uh, my wife, um, who I've known since 1986. I met her at Only High. Um, I had some insecurities as it relates to math. So in math class, I said, to, you know, project those insecurities of not knowing Pythagoras theory or not knowing geometry, calculus or whatever the math class was in Mr. Newton class. I'm going to get down on one knee and I'm going to propose to this young lady. So in 1986, I got down on one knee and I said, yo, would you marry me? So Stella Fagan says no. So I said, OK, cool. So it was this really attractive Hispanic girl named Diana. I went over to her and I got down on one knee and I was like, yo, would you marry me? She was like, yes. Yeah. So I started dating her. And um, and so Stella was that person, though, who I used to mess with all the time in high school. So from 1986 to 1990, I would always tease her. And we were like best friends in high school. So when I get up in the morning, I look at this person who I just married. Last June, we just celebrated one year, June 11th, who is my soulmate. When we leave Only High in 1990, I go off to college to Johnson C. Smith University, HBCU in Charlotte, North Carolina. She goes off to college and our spirits were out in the universe until we reconnected six years ago. So that's how I start my morning. I pray over her. I get some devotion. I get showered. Um, I read some scripture. And then I leave my house at five o'clock and I park uh, at a train station uh, in Philadelphia Melrose train station. That train comes at 520. It gets me into 30th Street Station at 6. That train leaves out uh, Amtrak at uh, 620. Gets me into Harrisburg uh, at 830. Um, and I've been, I was doing that. I've been in this role for five years now. Um, and I celebrated five years on May 12th. But for the first two years, three years, I was in Harrisburg Monday through Thursday. Same train schedule. Uh, every Friday in Philadelphia, uh, you know, um, until the pandemic. So then I get in, I check emails. Um, but a typical day, it trends in multiple directions because on one level you have, uh, anti-Semitism on another level, you have xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia on another level, you have discrimination in public accommodations and commercial property, uh, and housing and employment. Um, you know, so you also have a staff of 87 and three regional offices with uh, a total of 12, uh, direct reports who make up your senior management team. Our table of organization is the governor's office, 11 commissioners, uh, seven are six, excuse me, are uh, Democrat, five are Republican. And so those are your bosses. And then you also have the needs of 
the people of the Commonwealth. So there's not one particular um, day that's the same. Nevertheless, there are some things that are the same. Mm -hmm. How are you going to fight for justice? Um, and you fight for justice by using science. You fight for justice by using uh, discipline. You fight for justice by using those skills that you're equipped with. So for me, it's mediation, it's conciliation, it's social work, it's sociology, it's ethnography, it's anthropology, it's a combination of those things. And then how do you divorce yourself from making sure that you don't engage in a form of ethnocentrism, right? So uh, in Pittsburgh, we were on the front lines when Anton Walker got murdered. Uh, but I have to also discipline myself not to say, well, that was a black male. I come from the black tradition. Um, I may have had some experiences with state sanctioned violence. Um, but nonetheless, you trend in that direction and you do it from a neutral standpoint, always making sure that throughout the day, I'm always you know, negotiating my identity. How do I make sure that I check my toxic masculinity? I'm six, six. Um, you know, I walk certain places with the exception of Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just to just keep it real um, where I'm not really worried that I'm going to be abducted. I'm going to be, you know, kidnapped or I'm going to be harmed. Um, and so throughout the day, I'm answering, you know, phone calls from individuals who have filed a complaint with the PHRC. I'm meeting with the director of policy and the governmental affairs because there are some bills that are germane to the PHRC. I'm meeting with the chief counsel uh, as it relates to looking at some of the things that are that are happening in that space. I'm meeting with my regional director from Pittsburgh, Harrisburg, or Philadelphia on virtual to discuss some of the things that are happening in their particular region. And not everything is centered around, you know, the surge of white nationalism uh, and white supremacy. Right. A lot of times right. it's fair housing violations, Indeed. educational um, challenges, uh, the Crown Act being, you know, um, discriminated against in the workplace because, you know, because of your hair or, you know, being denied entrance into a restaurant because you have a support animal. So the day is wrought with a lot of challenges. Um, and so that's where the discipline comes in mm -hmm. at. Um, so there's a lot of spiritual discipline. There's a lot of physical discipline. There's a lot of making sure that you eat right, make sure that you engage in a form of self-care. Um, and then a lot of dark days, you know, a lot of dark days. So when you talk about a typical day, there's not a day that goes by in this position for five years where I'm not crying metaphorically or I'm not crying physically for humanity. Because there are whites in the, in the Commonwealth who are being discriminated against as well. But the lore of whiteness separates us and seduces us into the black-white binary that we don't think that there are white individuals who are suffering with housing discrimination. And we're not talking about the moniker of poor whites or, you know, respectfully, poor white trash living right. in trailer parks. Yep. No, we're talking about whites who grow up and, they, and they're socialized and they work in urban, suburban and rural areas. And so then it's the way people are disrespected because they're disabled. Um, so it's it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Um, and so that spiritual support system, uh, people like you, people like Steve Crawford, people like secretary, former secretary of corrections, John Wetzel are part of that network where I can say, hey, I can email you all um, and I can just be vulnerable. I can be free. And so it's it's hard work. Um, I think that for me, it's a calling. So it's not a job. Uh, it's, it's a calling. Uh, it's truly is a calling for you. And we're honored. And the Pennsylvania is. Um, lucky to have you as the executive director vulnerability touch on that for me uh you said you have an, a staff of 87 and and i the reason i want to go there is because young people today don't believe vulnerability can be a strength they see vulnerability as a weakness um talk to me a little bit how you keep your team in check that vulnerability is a prized attribute not a demon attribute it's it's a leadership style that is servant leadership. 
it's a leadership style that is rooted in uh, Pablo Fieri's work, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Um, I believe that it's Socratic in nature. Though, the, as an executive director of the PHRC, I kind of know where I'm going to take the agency. But I will ask the question and say, hey, what do you think we should do for our next conference? Now, in my mind, I know that I'm going to be partnering with Temple University for our PHRC Social Justice Lecture Series. I'm bringing in Anita Hill. I'm going to be partnering with Lincoln University, bringing in, you know, Eddie Glaude, that I'm going to be, you know, bringing in Tim Wise, whatever the case may be. But I also want some buy-in. So the staff will say, well, you know, we haven't done a sexual harassment awareness prevention intervention conference since the pandemic. Let's do one. It's leading by example. And then my golden rule is not treat people uh, the way you want to be treated. My golden rule is treat people the way you were not treated. So a lot of us were not treated with dignity. A lot of us were not treated with respect. The three pillars of the civil rights movement are truth, love, and kindness, truth, love, and kindness, truth, love, and kindness. So it's me saying to Desiree Chang, and I don't call her Desiree. I call her Director Chang um, because you're not walking into an office. Maybe you do, but I don't ever recall being in a cabinet meeting with Secretary Wessel and someone calls him John or someone called Tom Wolf. Tom, they called him Governor Wolf. Hopefully folk are calling, you know, Governor Shapiro, Governor Shapiro, not, you know, calling them Josh. But, you know, that's just me. I come out of that tradition. Right. Even with you. Absolutely. I'm not calling you by share. You're President Hannah. Now, mm -hmm. if you push back and say, Chad. You know, don't call me. I'm still going to call you President, you know, Hannah. And you do. And I push back a lot of times. Yeah, and I, yeah. And I'm, yeah, it's OK. It's OK. You know, yeah, but yeah. Desiree Chang, I'll say to her, find a conference that ties into the mission of the PHRC and the values of PHRC and aligns with our work. And let's get you there. And so my leadership style is one in which I want people to go to conferences, but I want them to only go to that one conference uh, from a standpoint of, you know, viewing the conference, the next time they go to that conference, I really, from a strengths-based perspective, want them to be an active participant. You be the keynote. You be the workshop leader. You, pr you provide the proposal. And so for me, it's making sure that each day uh, in their supervision, when they have supervision, some are weekly supervision, some are bi-weekly supervision, that I'm listening, I'm learning. And so for me, it's listening, it's learning, it's then leading, and ultimately they know I love them. And my leadership style is the highest form of love, which is agape love. Now, I'll put you on a performance improvement plan. I'll love you, but I'll put you on performance improvement plan. Um, I'll let you go, you know, respectfully, uh, with cause or without cause. But I'm going to see your humanity as I transition you out. So it's no retaliation. It's, uh, you know, the common thread of humanity. It's also promoting PTO. Take your pay time off. Uh, I'll add some satire in there that, hey, listen, Whoever your beneficiaries are, if you die while you're working, they're going to mourn you, but they're going to go and spend your, 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 your life insurance. And they're going to say deuces as they put you, you know, in the grave. And so it's how do you negotiate that work-life balance? So we bring in uh, individuals who work with us on mindfulness, on meditation, because the work that we do is, is very wrought with like a lot of emotions. We're also moving the agency to a place where um, we're going to be engaged in trauma-informed care for our workers. But when you look at the work of Bragger and Holloway, and you know Bragger and Holloway Absolutely. as they talk about organizational dynamics and human service organizations, all change is from the bottom up, not the top down. So if you're a clerical staff, look out, you may be going to an EOC conference because there's no hierarchy in my mm -hmm. leadership. If you are a regional director, we may ask you to table an event. And then if you are an investigator, we may ask you to sit on a panel for a particular event. So for me, it's just seeing their humanity, 
recognizing that it's not their job to come up with what's next for their career. They can, but it's my job to figure out if you are a human relations representative, one human relations representative, two, our HRR threes, our human relations representative threes, those are our supervisors. Well, in our Pittsburgh regional office, we have three. In our Harrisburg regional office, we have four. In our Philadelphia regional office, we have three as well. But if they stay in those positions for a period of time, how do I ascend from an HRR two to HRR three? Well, it's our job to say, let's see how we can kind of not nuance this, but figure out what is it that you like. And let's see if we can create some other positions with some additional compliment. Thank you. Very informative. The power of education. We at Commonwealth University um, have prided ourselves on the power of education being one of the probably most probable ways for social and economic upward mobility um, for all students. We were created to serve the low and middle income, the low and middle income families of the Commonwealth. Um, what message would you share with our highly urban first generation, um, many times underrepresented students, and our highly rural students who come from almost the same dimensions, but in different settings? You and I have had conversation about how our rural and urban students are so much alike, mm -hmm. but they don't see that because their worlds are very different. What message would you share with them to encourage them that a college degree is within reach and it's within reach in a respectful, inclusive way? I would first and foremost um, have the conversation with them in which I'm taking off um, all of the intellectual identities, right? So I'm not... I'm not in a role of ethnographer, anthropologist, sociologist, social worker, professor, even executive director of the PHRC. I would say to the urban young person that education uh, is the passport uh, for the future. I would say to the urban individual, uh, given the backdrop of the high rates of violence, systemic and structural racism, and I'll just focus on Philadelphia, Camden and Trenton. Uh, and for your listening audience, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with those catchment areas, but for the urban youth that I've worked with there, I would say consider a Bloomsburg, consider a Lock Haven, consider uh, a Westchester, a Lincoln University, a Cheney University. Um, it makes a difference. Even if you get out of that catchment area that's rife with so much environmental racism or what Doug Massey calls American apartheid or what David Wellman calls uh, portraits of white racism, you have an opportunity to get out of that catchment area uh, come to a place like Bloomsburg University. Every time I come up here on this campus, I'm telling you, I'm telling Dan, just how it just opens my mind because it's greenery. With the greenery, the backdrop of that is the scenery, the aesthetics. It's just, it feels very comfortable. Not without its challenges, but it's different than Trenton. And I'm not, you know, stereotyping or generalizing Trenton, but Trenton, Camden, and parts of Philadelphia have the spatial segregation, have the construction of the ghetto and where you know, uh, lines are built, uh, boxes are built, and people are placed in those boxes. The rural area, I would also say, nothing wrong with, you know, coming from a farming community, um, but the world is much bigger than that farming community. Um, and yes, you may be in a classroom as a rural white person or migrant person or other with people that you may have never interacted with before, but that's the beauty of diversity, right? That's the beauty of uh, getting to know someone shared experiences. 
the rural young person can talk to the urban young person about how in this rural community, there are 50 guns on the wall. And my dad or my grandmother or my mother or my grandmother will say, go grab a gun. That's nomenclature. We go, we grab the gun, we do some hunting. The urban area, that young person can say in my community, we don't hunt, you know, uh, you know, animals, but the hunting of individuals. Black lives matter for us, but yet there's black people killing black people. Forms of internalized oppression, but I'm just using that as an example because they can break down some of the divisions, right? They can say, well, listen, have you all ever decided about gun education here? The, the urban young person can talk about the experiences of leaving Philadelphia and traveling because black people are not a monolith. There are a lot of urban individuals we hear urban. Uh, they can also be on the white side of the color line and be urban Indeed. as well. Indeed. Rural, you can be on the other side of the color line. You could be a black rural <laughs> individual. Totally. And, and so I think that my message to them would be the beauty of education, in particular uh, in, the, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. There are some wonderful universities and life outcomes now. Be mindful. You, you and I are doing this podcast right now. If there's a flood in your house or electrical problem in my house, the person may not have a degree. Mm -hmm. But what they're going to charge you and what they're going to charge me per hour amounts to, you know, what what some individuals may make, you know, as, as college professors or, or, you know, people who may have a college degree. Mm -hmm. I would say that it's not either or it's both. And we want people to have an entrepreneurial spirit. Indeed. We want people to have certificates to your college. Mm -hmm. But I still think that the beauty of being on college campuses uh, now that we're not in this space of the global historical pandemic puts us in a space where you're in a dormitory with one another. And so for me, as a person who does work around race dialogue, I want that. I want the rural individual, the urban individual and the suburban individual to be in a social justice milieu, i.e. a classroom, the dormitory, the cafeteria, the block, the yard, whatever you call it here at, at Bloomsburg. And I want them interacting with one another breaking down those divisions. And I want them to create that beloved community absent a void of President Hanna, mm -hmm. Executive Director Lassiter, this professor, this administrator. I want them to be able to talk and say, hey, listen, um, in my household, we didn't know that about African-Americans. In my community, we didn't know that about whites. In my community, we didn't know that about Jewish individuals. In my community, we didn't know that about AAPI. In my community, yeah, we are homophobic. What about your community? How have you guys dealt with combating homophobia, xenophobia? And I think that that's the beauty of this commonwealth. I think there's more peace and justice uh, in this commonwealth. I think there's more um, similarities and less divisions. I think that education is that great equalizer. At the end of the day, they may tell me I don't have the financial aid. I don't have the means. And I'll say, contact, you know, President Hannah, contact, you know, Dan and, and the team or, or whomever. But I still think there's beauty in both populations and all populations just experiencing college. Mm hmm. And the beauty of college and, you know, uh, I would imagine cafeteria food is better than it was when I went to a historical black college university. No pun intended, Johnson C. Smith, but, you know, black folk are not a monolith. So, you know, we didn't always have to eat the food that they gave us, but that was in the 90s. And certainly it's better than it was at Temple University oh. where we met uh, or at Penn when you went on to grad school. Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, the vulnerability that you shared with us today, I hope our listeners, listeners can learn from and resonate with. Uh, you said something, the beauty of diversity. Um, that's not two words that are often used together in language today. Um, and the great equalizer might be that college campus. Um, today's the day after the 
Board of Governors of all of PASHI uh, voted to freeze tuition. A fifth year uh, of cost containment where we have frozen tuition for our students. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that and to thank the governor, both houses of the legislature for working with PASHI to keep our education the most affordable in the Commonwealth. One of the things that I've learned from you throughout our time together is everybody matters. What would you share with those individuals who you know was me? Immigrant, didn't speak English in fifth grade, but someone saw something in me that kept encouraging me that you can and you can go on and you can keep going. That's mentorship. What would your final words be to those students who are perplexed, confused, maybe walking down their own road about tweaks, pivots, turning into a direction that has light instead of darkness so that maybe through this podcast, your words can, I'm going to use the word save, save two individuals. Uh, it will have been a moment worth spending. So just very briefly, I, I would say to those of you who are listening that mentors they're on every side of the color line. They're on every side of the gender line, how people express their gender identity, their gender orientation. I would say that uh, for me as an African-American, um, respectfully, uh, Coach Jim Evans at Only High um, was not a mentor. He was an African-American coach who saw me as a commodity uh, made me in ninth grade take wood shop, uh, home economics, uh, did not see my intellect. Uh, I know that one of my best friends is going to listen to this podcast, uh, but Secretary of Education, Dr. Khaled Mumin and I are best friends. And he remembers when we sat on the bench in ninth grade and we spoke about how we wanted to change the world. And I would want young people to realize that your mentors don't have to look like you. Uh, the, the president of Bloomsburg University, Dr. Bashir Hanna, uh, was a mentor to one of my other best friends, uh, Dr. Gregory Seaton, who got a degree from Temple University, uh, another degree from Brown University, another degree from Harvard University, uh, a Ph.D. from the University of Penn. Uh, respectfully, Greg, I'm not, you know, uh, breaching confidentiality, but he tells his story of his mother's uh, drug, uh, his family's drug addiction. Uh, went on to get a Ph.D. with distinction from Penn, tenure professor at College of New Jersey. President Hanna was his mentor. And so I've had mentors. I've had white individuals who have poured into me. I've had African-American individuals who have told me I was not going to amount to anything. And that's not blanketing a, a statement of just all African-Americans or all whites. But what I'm here to share with young people is trust uh, people based on their humanity. Uh, recognize that there can be people who can pour into you that look like you and people who don't look like you and just be open to individuals uh, who come to you uh, to help you, not in a benevolent way, because we don't, as African-Americans and students of color, they don't need the great white hope. They don't need the benevolent racism. They don't, they don't need you placating, ingratiating, or displaying with false generosity. So young people, get some mentors in your life, you can't see me right now, but uh, President Hanna can tell you when I talk about vulnerability, I'm crying right now because one, it's therapeutic. Two, uh, I'm a wounded healer. Greek mythology talks about wounded healer. 
Uh, there are a lot of people who are wounded, but they're not healed uh, from trauma uh, that happened in their childhood or just the day to day experiences of dealing with racial trauma, racial fatigue. So for me, a lot of times I'm crying because of others, not my own trauma. Right. Um, I'm crying because of the homelessness uh, on all sides of the color line, the city of Philadelphia around the Pennsylvania Convention Center. There's whites, blacks and others who are homeless, uh, racism, you know, all forms of bigotry, discrimination and prejudice. And so uh, my tears are from a strength based perspective, that thing that informs me to fight for policy. And everybody doesn't have to be like me. Right. You know, some people may say, well, yo, he's six, six. Every time you turn around, he's crying. Right. But, you know, uh, my big brother, Secretary Wetzel, former secretary of uh, corrections, who's one of your trustees, trustees, yeah. chairs your board. That's right. He knows me to be, you know, the big Aristotle, the big sensitive. So my, my message in ending is, you know, find some mentors, uh, trust your mentors, seek out your mentors, um, and they could look just like you. They can have shared experiences, but they don't also have to have the shared experience, right? They may have grown up with two head of households, um, and they may have grown up with no, no parents. Uh, they may have been in the foster care system. They may have been reared by you know, the church or, or, or the masjid or the temple. Uh, they may be a mentor who's agnostic Scientologist or who may be an atheist and that's fine. But in ending, I would just simply say that's what's helped me. Uh, mentors, uh, knowing that I have persons like you, I'm 50 years old. Um, and, and, and I, you're never too old to, you know, have mentors and you're never too old to want to mentor. And so I think that's what I want my legacy to be. Uh, as a person who was a professor at the University of Penn, Westchester University, and I'm back at Westchester. I was back last semester uh, teaching a course after a five-year hiatus when I when I left and came to the state. But it just feels good to be back in the classroom. It feels good to see the beauty and the diversity. And, and one day in ending, I would love to be in a classroom where it's not just African-American students, it's not just uh, white students, but I would love to see a plethora of Native American, Indigenous, Asian-American, Pacific Islanders, and others. Uh, but that would be what it is. And just want to just thank you, you know, President Hanna, for not what you've done for, you know, Greg Seaton and planting a seed in him uh, and not what you've done for me and planting a seed for me. But what you've done as a Commonwealth educational leader, I think it's very important for us to give individuals like you and even, you know, myself and others our flowers uh, while we're yet still uh, in this physical realm. Uh, don't talk about, you know, who President Bashir Hanna was, you know, at a, at a memorial. Talk about who you are now and you you're a leader uh, and please sit with what I'm saying to you because I come out of that, that tradition uh, where the Holy Spirit speaks to me. You're in that same pantheon as what we see with, you know, former president of University of Penn, Amy Gutman. You're just doing it without the large endowment. No pun intended against Madam <laughs> President. Um, but I, I thank God for you. Uh, Chad, uh, we've known each other for a long time. Um, I want to thank you first and foremost, uh, but I also want to speak with our audience. Um, it has been an honor to have you serving the citizens of the Commonwealth. I don't think we often look at life from the perspective of how privileged we are. Um, you and I have visited other countries. I was born in another country. Uh, and the benefits we have of living in this country, regardless of how we feel about it today. Uh, I have family that have said to me and my siblings, you won the lottery by being where you are. Uh, and if that doesn't resonate with uh, our listeners, 
Um, I hope it does one day because this great land is still the land of opportunity. And what you do uh, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania as executive director of the Pennsylvania Human Rights Commission is really about creating a level playing field for all citizens of the Commonwealth, regardless of the road traveled to get to where they are. And we don't say it enough, uh, your 18-hour days should never be taken for granted by anybody because you're doing it not just because of the job you hold. You're doing it because there's an internal fire. We started this conversation with that fire. It's a great place to end. There's an internal fire burning inside of you that saw firsthand what oppression can lead to, and you're fighting against it every day. Uh, we can't thank you enough. Thank you for joining us. To our listeners, uh, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode as much as we have here sitting with Chad. Um, and thank you for listening to uh, Common Ground, coming to you from Commonwealth University of Pennsylvania. Chad, thank you so much. Thank you, Doc. If you would like more information about today's show, you can find links in the show notes. You can also visit our page at commonwealthu.edu slash common ground. I hope you'll join us next time for another episode of Common Ground. Thank you for listening and be well.